0: love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well look no further and join me Katie with your the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight and of course
1: women who have been misrepresented through all time on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
2: If you like this podcast can we recommend another one?
1: the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities.
3: Happy holidays, freaks. It is uh, Christmas Eve when we're recording this episode, and uh, things are festive and bright here in our house.
4: We did
0: absolutely intend on getting all of our work done so that we didn't have to do any work today, but did it happen? No. 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 Nope. So we are recording on Christmas Eve.
3: I uh, actually did some last-minute Christmas shopping last night, and again, as I mentioned in a previous episode, that's by design so that, um, yeah, I have to fight the crowds, mm-hmm. but I'm less apt to insist that you open your presents immediately. So I went out Friday night yeah. and I picked up uh, a few things for you that I had planned on on getting. Yeah.
0: Then walked through the door and told me to get away from you.
3: Yeah. And then I <laughs> I went into the bedroom, locked the door. I wrapped every single present.
0: Beautifully, by the way.
3: And then brought them out, put them under the tree. And insisted that you open them immediately. (laughs) What is wrong with us? I don't know. I wrapped those gifts and they stayed wrapped for about four minutes. Yeah. I could have just given you the stuff, but I I don't know. I guess it it just wouldn't be the same.
0: Now, I had a very similar plan where I was like, I'm going to order this at a specific time so that I know it will arrive on December 23rd. Right. I, this is how I'm going to do it. That way I can wrap it. I can get it under the tree. And I won't have that much time between the time that <laughs> it arrives and Christmas Day. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> now, because of the immense storms across the country, it will not arrive in time for Christmas.
3: <laughs> what are you going to do? You've
0: opened everything else. so
3: Yeah, it's fine. Well, here's a belated Christmas gift for you. This story I think you're going to enjoy. World War I was in full swing. ...in 1916, and um, <laughs> that's a happy thought. Yeah. <laughs> the Germans had rolled out a new, terrifying, state-of-the-art weapon in the U-boat. Now, that's weird, because I always thought the U-boat was like a World War II thing, but, but no, it, it actually debuted in World War I. Okay. The U-boat was an abbreviation for the name Unterseeboot, under boat Which literally means exactly that. And these monsters trolled the ocean, wreaking havoc in the Atlantic. On September 5th, 1914, the HMS Pathfinder was sunk by SMU-21. The Pathfinder became the very first ship to be sunk by a submarine using a self-propelled torpedo.
0: So far, I'm confused about why you think I would like this story.
3: Well, hopefully your your attitude will change as I get into this a little bit more.
0: Okay. I know that you love war. I
3: love history. We've discussed this. Uh, and that includes military history, of course.
0: I won't get into it, but I think it's very interesting that you're talking about weaponry.
3: <laughs> okay. Okay. During World War One, 373 German submarines were built. Throughout their terrifying reign on the high seas, U-boats sank 10 battleships, 18 cruisers, and uh, many more smaller vessels. This, of course, just during World War One. They also destroyed 5,700 merchant and fishing vessels. This totaled over 11 million tons of uh, of vessels and killed about 15,000 sailors and an undetermined number of civilians.
0: When you think about events like this and ships being destroyed, you know what you never think about? The fact that probably that's just litter now.
3: Yeah. So the U-boats roamed far and wide on the Atlantic during World War I, not just off the coast of Europe. In fact, in 1916, a merchant marine ship that was flying Allied colors was sunk by a German U-boat off the coast of Antarctica, somewhere between the uh, Deception Island and Elephant Island in the South Shetland Archipelago. And you might recognize the name Elephant Island. That became the desolate refuge for British explorer Ernest Shackleton and his crew that same year. Shackleton. 1916. That's after their ship, the Endurance, was lost in an ice pack. So it's a pretty remote foreboding area. And the U-boat sunk this merchant vessel, and it was believed that everybody on board, the entire crew, went down with the ship. The cargo, of course, was lost. It was thought to be carrying medical supplies and food to the Western Front. So this is 1916. 2 years pass. It's now 1918. The incident had long since stopped dominating world headlines, and a civilian craft was traveling in the area when they noticed a single person standing by himself on an uninhabitable tidal island. And that's weird on so many levels. First, a tidal island is exactly what it sounds like. It's a an island that is exposed at low tide only but submerged at high tide. This, this tidal island was located off the northwest coast of the Antarctic Peninsula. So it's just one guy mm-hmm. standing on an island by himself. It's very surreal. The question, of course, was how did this guy end up standing on a tidal island?
0: I would think the question would be, am I hallucinating? Well,
3: yes. They're so close to the Antarctic. The ship drew near to the tidal island. They launched a rescue boat and retrieved the man. Once on board, he told them his name was Edward Allen Oxford and that he was a British Imperial citizen. He claimed that he had been on that ship that was sunk by the German U-boat two years prior. However, the odd thing is, he insisted that it had only been about six weeks since the ship went down. What? Yeah, he said, I've been on on an island for six weeks. When my ship was torpedoed, I spent six weeks on the island. Now, the man wasn't dressed in a way that one would need to dress in order to survive in Antarctica for six weeks, let alone two years. Obviously, this created a great deal of confusion (laughs) among the crew. How did he manage to survive for so long in such harsh conditions? And why did he claim only six weeks had passed and not a full two-year period? And how did he end up on an island that was only above water at low tide? Right. Strange story. He insisted that he had walked over to the tidal island at low tide from a larger nearby island moments before he was discovered. And he insisted that this other island was warm and tropical and had plenty of wildlife and vegetation that kept him alive. What?! And no such island existed. We're talking about right off the coast of Antarctica. So this just added to further the confusion of the situation. And he continued to insist that only six weeks had gone by and that he had survived on a tropical island. Until one day, when the tide was low enough, he walked across to the tidal island and he said it got a lot colder and then he saw the ship coming. Although no one could explain how he survived His story was so unbelievable that they just declared him insane.
0: Right. But still, I mean, regardless of what he's saying, how did he survive? That's weird.
3: Yeah, exactly. That's my point. But rather than try to answer a difficult question like that, they said, no, he's crazy. And they institutionalized him in a um, in a mental hospital in Nova Scotia. And he spent a good deal of time at this convalescence facility. Now, while he was there, he met Mildred Constance Landmeyer, and they fell in love. Aww. She was a nurse with the Canadian Army Medical Corps. He was there for 18 months. Are we sure? Oddly, he said it was only a weekend, but no. No, he was there for 18 months, and when he was released, he and Mildred got married, and they moved to West Quebec. Oxford had a cousin that owned a dairy farm there, and uh, he helped his cousin with farm chores. But it turned out that he didn't really like it, he wasn't much of a farmer, so he later became a forester, working in the Canadian lumber camps. This required him to travel a great deal, and he was often away from his beloved Mildred, uh, sometimes for several months at a time. But his love for her was strong, and he wrote to her constantly. And he would write to her to not only express his undying love for her, but he would also extensively record his memories from the time that he was stranded on what he still insisted was a tropical island somewhere off the coast of Antarctica. And he never wavered in his story and his belief that it was true. And there was never a contradiction in any of his descriptions of his experiences there. And in all, he wrote over 200 letters to his wife containing various aspects of this incredible island that he lived on. So how did this story come to light? Recently, inside the house in Quebec that they once resided in, the current owner discovered his letters. And so they started researching this story to see if there were any hard facts that could back up what this soldier had written in his letter. Right. And it wasn't long before they did, in fact, discover official imperial records that were well over 100 years old that confirmed that an Edward Allen Oxford was on a merchant marine ship, and indeed that ship was torpedoed. And indeed, he was recovered nearly two years after the ship went down in the Antarctic, and he was declared insane and institutionalized in Nova Scotia there's no rational explanation for how this guy survived as long as he did in such a deadly environment for as long as he did and why did he say it was only six weeks now that could have been because he was slowly going mad you know he sure lost track of time or whatever that would also explain his belief that there was a tropical island nearby he could have been hallucinating Mm -hmm. clearly understandable sure Nobody has been able to explain how a man torpedoed in the Antarctic in sub-zero temperatures with no food and inadequate clothing survived for two years on his own. It's a mystery. My source information, MysteriesUnsolved.com and Wikipedia.
0: That was super interesting. Fascinating,
3: isn't it? Yes. It's like if what he was saying was true, it's like he stepped into some sort of a portal or something, or maybe it was a time (laughs) shift. Maybe it was a a period of time that he somehow managed to get back to when the island or that land mass in the Antarctic was actually in some kind of a subtropical uh, region before the polar shift. Yeah, that's what that's yeah, I'm going with that one.
0: Oh wow. I I mean, my guess would be that somebody had helped him like he was on a ship or something and he had been kept warm and clothed and such for a period of time until he was then deposited on the tidal island.
3: I guess maybe, I mean, that's physically possible seems a little bit unlikely. Far more unlikely than a time portal. Sure. When news broke that World War II had ended, celebrations spontaneously erupted all over the world. Especially, it seems, in the Soviet Union. They began celebrating the defeat of Germany in World War II as soon as it was announced. Less than 24 hours later, the entire country was out of vodka.
0: We got a message from Shells on Instagram. Kat, I just listened to your story about Ada Blackjack, and I wanted to let you know. Now, this is the story about Ada, that woman who helped the uh, group of very misguided explorers uh, in the Arctic and ended up surviving for two years before she uh, was brought back to Alaska. And her only companion for the last part of this incredible journey was a cat named Victoria who had been on the ship that brought her over. Shells continues, I wanted to let you know that the cat Victoria did survive the whole stay slash journey and went home with Ada. Wow. This story also qualifies as a boo effect for me because another favorite podcast of mine, National Park After Dark, just released a three part series on this exact story. Ada was a true badass and so was that kitty. I am thrilled about that update. Thank you so, so much.
3: (laughs) Nicholas writes, Hey, Cat and Jethro, I've been listening for maybe uh, almost a year now, starting from episode one, currently in the 300s. Thought you'd like to know about two boo effects that I've experienced. The first was a few months ago while I was listening to you guys while working. I use a 3D modeling program. I'm a drafter. And was measuring something in the program when, as soon as I read the measurement, one of you said the exact two numbers, and it happened again in the same episode with a different measurement. What? I damn near threw my phone across the office. How ridiculous are those odds, pun intended? The second time was earlier today. I was on my way to the dentist, and I started a new episode, and lo and behold, Kat mentions going to the dentist. So many boo effects. It's It's crazy. Super weird.
0: Nikki writes, I thought this would make y'all smile. One of the fellow freaks sent you a message about how she incorporates what you got from me into everyday situations. Right. She is not the only one. My dogs were being very needy, and I turned to them and started singing, What You Want From Me. (laughs) Y'all seriously need to make that a ringtone and sell it on your site. I would buy it not only because it brings me great happiness when I hear it, but it's another way of supporting the show. Also, a notification of the mummy's voice. "Er," would also be very fun. (laughs) Uh Just an idea, flying my freak flag, loud and proud, Nikki.
3: I love that idea. (laughs) Me too. Somebody did put the uh, What You Got For Me jingle on- um,
0: Zedge, was it?
3: Yeah, I put it on Zedge and made it available as a uh, ringtone. But yeah, we we really do need to uh, make it available on our website or there if you want it. And also the mummy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great text notification sound.
2: For real. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story.
1: Have you noticed the subliminal messages we hide in these liners? Damn right you haven't. This is the box of oddities. What
3: you got for me? What? What you? What, what you?
4: What you got for me? What? What? What, what, what you got for me?
3: Uh. There, there, they are for you. <laughs>
0: As I mentioned, it's kind of interesting that you were talking about weaponry today. I mean, you ended up going off onto a completely different story, but the way you started, I was like, excuse me, sir, <laughs> because I'm going to start by talking about the phaser, the phaser or personal halting and stimulation response rifle. It's essentially the equivalent of a ton of laser pointers aimed at the eyes and it's designed to lead to temporary blindness. Uh, The goal is to have a weapon that would not be long term harmful or maim or kill someone, but but just stop people um, to blind criminals or others who mean to harm you just for long enough so that they can be apprehended. But the phaser uh, does have a problem in that the United Nations banned blinding weapons in 1995 as part of the Geneva Convention. So no phaser for you.
3: The Geneva Convention's ruining all our fun.
0: <laughs> Today we're talking about experimental weapons. Ooh. Some that were functional and some that maybe didn't quite do what, you know. Mm. All right. Engineers at the Picatinny Arsenal in New Jersey have figured out a way to harness the power of lightning. They designed this weapon that shoots lightning bolts along laser beams to kill targets it's called the laser induced plasma channel Wow! i know wow so a guy named george fisher he's the lead scientist on the project and he explained how the usually unpredictable lightning bolts can be controlled if a laser puts out a pulse with modest energy by the time it's incredibly tiny, the power can be huge. So, with its high intensity and energy, focusing the lightning bolt to keep it along the straight and narrow path, it can be precisely aimed at a target.
3: Wow, and so it would have a similar effect as a true natural lightning strike.
0: Right, Um, but it's just transmitted by way of a laser. It's kind of like the lasers guiding the lightning.
3: Okay. All right.
0: Details of the weapons were released on the U.S. Army's website. Now, during the duration of the laser pulse, it can be putting out more power than a large city needs. Wow. But the pulse only lasts for two trillionths of a second.
3: It's incredible that we even have the capabilities of measuring A time span that is so incredibly minute like that.
0: Yeah, I'm always blown away by, and I know that once you get working in a certain field, you kind of get into the nitty gritty of it. Right. And so there's no reason that I would understand lasers and whatever. But then I think about, you know, we talked about this the other day. I don't understand how zippers work. (laughs) I don't even know how this podcast works. Yeah. It's confusing and more than I care to concern myself Uh, with.
3: Above your pay grade.
0: (laughs) For real. During World War II, the British had a very creative idea. They wanted to create a fortified iceberg that would function as a massive aircraft carrier. (laughs) It was called Project Habakkuk. And... This is the idea. They would take an amount of wood pulp and mix it with ice to make an unbreakable structure that would take months to melt, but would require very little in the way of raw materials. One of the great things about this is that repairing it would be amazing. You just pour water on it and blam, you've got new ship, new ice ship, right? Apparently, Winston Churchill was way into this idea. He gave the development the go-ahead in 1943. Uh, There were some flaws in the design, though. Uh First of all, you need a giant freezer in order to construct this.
3: Yeah, and you can only use it in, like, the North Atlantic or the Arctic or or the polar regions.
0: Right. And it's huge. So it doesn't really, it's not stealthy Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. any way, and it moves very slowly. I mean, like a glacier might, you know? You just can't (laughs) rely on floating ice to be part of, you know, it just wasn't well thought through. Speaking of size being the problem, if a big gun is good, Good. Does that mean a bigger gun is gooder? (laughs) Because in the 1960s, there was this British inventor who came up with a scheme for a ground-mounted, quote-unquote, super gun. The inventor's name was Gerald Bull, and he began working on development in the 1980s for Saddam Hussein. He had been working on this thing since the 60s, and he was like, finally, someone wants my super gun. Unfortunately, the barrel of the gun was 512 feet long.
3: What? Was it made of ice and wood pulp?
0: No, but it was large enough to be seen from space. <laughs> so you can see how moving that around might be counterproductive when in a wartime situation.
3: Not very stealthy.
0: Uh Uh-huh. It was decided that the behemoth guns would have been impractical in true warfare, according to BBC, due to how immovable they were.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. I'm going to kill you, but come over here because I can't.
3: (laughs) Yeah, stand (laughs) a little little to the left. Over here, though. Okay, now, chin up. Good. Hold it.
0: In the 1950s, and for several decades following, we saw a tremendous interest in VTOL aircraft. An example would be the French C-450, Colliopter. The Colliopter means beetle in French, and it was named this because it was like a an aircraft, but instead of having two wings that jut out from the sides, it has a singular round wing that goes all the way around the unit. So it does not lift off in the way that a normal plane might. It lifts off vertically.
3: Wow. Sounds incredibly dangerous. Like a flying skill saw.
0: Kind of. Uh, It launches like a rocket and that is great because it would remove the need for vulnerable runways and uh, reduce the space that it needed to land and take off.
3: So they could make a much smaller floating iceberg carrier. (laughs) That's right. Which made everything more practical. Another advantage to
0: this design was it eliminated wingtip vortexes, which would enable the speed of the aircraft to excel Mach 2. Theoretically, this is a revolutionary design, but the transition between vertical and horizontal flight proved very difficult, and hovering led to slow spinning on the axis, and it was very hard to land, and it always required power. It might work, but it's not Practical. However, with today's computer aids and assistance, such a project might be revisited. Okay, cannons. By themselves, they're pretty devastating, right? But once again, we're looking at this gun versus bigger gun thing. What if, and stay with me here, Mm
3: -hmm. two cannons? Like a double barrel cannon? (laughs) Yup. Okay.
0: This was the idea of John Gilliland, a Georgia dentist. He was also a mechanic, but he was mostly a dentist. And he designed this double barreled cannon in 1862. The idea, obviously, was if one cannon is good, two cannons are uh, great. Also, the cannon was designed so that you could either fire one side of the cannon or both sides of the cannon. If firing both sides of the cannon simultaneously, the notion was you would connect two cannonballs by way of a chain, and then the chain would just take out whatever was in its way. Devastating, right? Well, in April of 1862, the cannon was brought to Georgia for test firing, and Richard Irby, Jr. describes what happens next. I wish I had Lindsay here to do a voice. The test was, to say the least, spectacular, if unsuccessful. According to reports, one ball left the muzzle before the other. And so the two balls pursued an erratic circular course, plowing up an acre of ground, destroying a cornfield, mowing down some saplings before eventually the chain broke. In other test firings, the balls adopted separate courses, one killing a cow, the other one demolishing a chimney on a log cabin. Observers scattered in fear of losing their lives to this ball and chain situation.
3: It sounds like a giant version of the 70s iconic toy, Clackers.
0: the With the spinning, the whoop yeah, whoop whoop yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. Those things are so loud and annoying.
3: And dangerous. That's back when danger was fun. <laughs> Or the Geneva Convention ruined everything.
0: There are reports of two or three spectators killed by the firings.
3: If one of the cannons didn't go off at all, Mm -hmm. then would the ball that was fired just swing right around and take out the entire army that was shooting?
0: I would think that it would just haul that that ball Mm -hmm. a little ways. Okay. Maybe just like dragging that old ball and chain behind it. Gotcha. But because of the unpredictability of packing a cannon with, (laughs) you know, gunpowder. You can't, there's no way to ensure that those cannonballs are leaving at the same speed, at the same time, at the same
3: trajectory.
0: Yeah. All those things. So though it was not a great situation with the test firings, it was declared an unqualified success, (laughs) uh, by the guy who invented it. Mm -hmm. Um, And he spent the rest of the war trying to convince various Confederate officials that the cannon really did work. Today, his cannon can still be found on display in Athens, Georgia, which is not too far from us, and I think we should go see it, because it sounds amazing.
3: Getting back to military history, um, one of the adaptations to the cannon during the Civil War was canister shot instead of uh, cannonballs. Mm -hmm. Essentially, they would take a coffee can and fill it with ball bearings Mm -hmm. and nails and any kind of shrapnel that they had and would fire it out of the cannon into the oncoming brigade or troops. Right. And witnesses at Gettysburg said that entire divisions would disappear in a cloud of pink mist.
0: That's terrible. While I was learning about weapons that had been banned worldwide, uh, because I got really into a... Pretty useless for this topic, <laughs> rabbit hole about banned weapons. I learned that weapons that dispense shrapnel, the shrapnel has to be made of metal. And it's so weird that we make these rules for war, which essentially is, mm. you know, just murder, you know, um, but we're like, oh, but don't murder them with plastic because that's hard <laughs> to find on an X ray. Sure. It's yeah. just so strange. It is weird. Fire. It's a tried-and-true method of wartime destruction, and perhaps the most famous was Greek fire. The legendary secret weapon was created by the Byzantine Empire, and not terribly unlike modern napalm, ignited upon contact, and it couldn't be doused with water alone. Interestingly, the formula for Greek fire was closely guarded and supposedly passed down only from emperor to emperor. And to this day, we still don't know the precise composition, although modern scholars think that petroleum was an active ingredient.
3: Sure, it makes sense.
0: Well, the emergence of gunpowder in the 15th century made Greek fire and other fire-based weaponry pretty obsolete. And flamethrowers all but disappeared from the battlefield until the Germans got way back into them during World War I. But there was a lot of talk about using Greek fire again in the Civil War. Although it's unclear how much it was actually used. A Philadelphia inventor named Levi Short is credited with coming up with a modern equivalent to Greek fire, which is thought to have been a solution of phosphorus in carbon bisulfide. Probably makes it quite unlike the original Greek fire. But this new weapon, we'll call it Levi Short fire, (laughs) unfortunately had the tendency to explode in storage.
3: Oh, yeah.
0: So instead of doing damage to enemy lines, it was just destroying your stores of (laughs) weapons and such.
3: That's not helpful during wartime.
0: The Union scrapped the idea of using it in war effort. The Civil War also saw the first really significant use of balloons in warfare, Mm -hmm. which is just the weirdest juxtaposition to me. But there was this thing called the Union Army Balloon Corps, and it was led by Professor Thaddeus S.C. Lowe. And Lowe was an inventor, and he was able to convince Abraham Lincoln of the balloon's possibilities. And he was appointed as the cabinet's chief aeronaut in 1861. Crazy. Unfortunately, there were a lot of constraints when using <laughs> balloons. You mm-hmm. had to tether them, otherwise, where are they going? Who knows? I don't. <laughs>
3: Civil War ballooning during uh, the war also kind of lost its luster when you had to be inside the balloon when the enemy was just over the bend with cannons and canister shot. Yeah. You become a, a really enticing target.
0: Yeah, and... and- Free moving balloons mm. most definitely would move into enemy territory, so and then they would be captured. And so the goal was, okay, we'll just tether them and we'll use it for surveillance so we'll just get you up there so that you can see where other people are at. And that makes perfect sense, except for, again, you could still be shot at. At one point a bunch of balloons were kept on and launched from the USS George Washington, effectively making that vessel the first ever aircraft carrier.
3: Oh, technically, yes,
0: though, obviously substandard as it was not made of ice and wood chips. One Civil War era inventor had other ideas, though. In 1863, Charles Purley of New York City received a patent for an unmanned aerial balloon that could drop bombs on the enemy. Now, instead of being just a surveillance balloon, it would be an attack balloon. (laughs) Now the balloon. It's <laughs> just so funny to say. The balloon would have used a timer to activate the bomb, but it did have serious problems in that uh, if the wind was blowing in the wrong direction, mm. you again. And then for many many other reasons, Pearlie's idea was never really taken seriously. This one's not so weird, uh, but it does look weird. The big dog, which is a robotic creature built by the company boston dynamics you might have seen it before it looks and moves like a real animal Um, like a living animal but it's a robot and it's not meant to be like a combat machine more to help troops carry things because it can carry like up to 100 pounds so that way the troops aren't worn out by Mm, carrying heavy packs and such they just put them on these robot dogs which is a great idea, except the robot dogs are huge and clunky and very, very loud. So it kind of gives away your position when you've got all these robot dogs that sound like a swarm of bees uh, coming at you. Anyway, uh, a- according to Military.com, we've opted out of robot dogs. Boo. <laughs> The Soviet Union was also very interested in harnessing real live animals for warfare. Now, too many examples of animals being used in warfare are terrible and sad and inhumane and stupid. Um, But this one is less of those things. Not none of those things, but less. War dolphins. (laughs) Now, according to... (laughs) the Sevastopol State Oceanarium. The project was developed in the 1960s, and it aimed to train dolphins to search for submerged warheads and other items. So the dolphins weren't used for murdering, but surveillance.
3: <laughs> that was. That's a frighteningly authentic dolphin.
0: Thank you. <laughs> And finally, in 1994, the Wright Laboratory in Ohio, a predecessor for today's U.S. Air Force Research Laboratory, produced a three-page proposal on a variety of possible non-lethal chemical weapons, which was later obtained by the Sunshine Project through the Freedom of Information Act. So in 2005, the Pentagon confirmed that the military had done research into a chemical weapon that could make enemy troops sexually irresistible to each other.
3: (laughs) Wow, like a pheromone drug Yes,
0: exactly. The Air Force Wright Lab received $7.5 million in 1994 to develop a weapon that would harness hormones naturally present in the body in low quantities. So when on the battlefield, enemy soldiers would breathe in this aerated sass, the idea was that they would then be irresistibly attracted to each other so how can you possibly be a menacing dangerous soldier if you can't keep your hands off each other like yes i would murder you however i'm way into this guy's fat cakes (laughs) how do you get them so round and so high
3: a good soldier knows to keep their weapon clean
0: (laughs) that's right Hmm. yep and also to keep it holstered until you're ready to use it. Right. That's
3: never, never pull your weapon unless, unless you, you intend to, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I think this is a genius plan. It doesn't hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if anything. I mean, as long as the
3: troops are consenting. <laughs> right, yeah.
0: yeah. No, I suppose if you're drugged, you can't really be consenting. So. But, Maybe it goes against everything I believe in.
3: But, but if, if the choice is being disemboweled by canister shot... Or getting a blowy, <laughs> Yeah. I, I opt for the latter.
0: <clears throat> I guess many people found this idea offensive, as <laughs> though war itself is not. Come on. Anyway, the idea was scrapped, and mm. that is that. Big thanks to Eric, who sent me the idea for experimental weapons. Appreciate you. I got most of my information from Gizmodo, from Live Science, and from Military.com.
3: Hey, before we wrap up this episode, tell the freaks about uh, the newspaper article from our hometown. And technically, it's still the holidays, so this kind of feels appropriate. It's
0: a wonderful feel-good story. So our friend, Deb Newman... She's one of those people that everyone knows, and everyone is better to know, I I will say. (laughs) She's a treat. She told this story, and our local newspaper shared it, and I think it's important to share, uh, one, for Deb Newman's purposes, but also because I like it. In 1996, Deb Newman was in a car accident. There's this road that goes from Ellsworth, Maine to Bangor, Maine, and it's called Route 1A, and it is terribly dangerous. It's
3: the highway to hell.
0: It is that what we
3: call it? That's what I called it.
0: There are so frequently accidents and fatalities on that road, it's terrible. Well, Deb Newman was one of those who got into an accident on that road. It was 1996 in December, and uh, she had been in a crash. After the impact, while waiting for an ambulance to arrive, someone else...
3: A fellow motorist?
0: Arrived on scene and was telling her, it's going to be okay, Mm -hmm. don't worry, an ambulance is on the way, you know, just keeping her calm. And of course, Deb in all of this is shaken up, she's probably in shock, and she tells this person, like, I have packages in the back that need to be mailed. And the person's like, don't worry about it. The ambulance is on the way. You're going to be okay." And she just kept obsessing about these packages, Mm -hmm. which, of course, you know, it's one of those things that you look back on and you're like, why was I so worried about those packages? Anyway, the ambulance came. Deb was brought to the hospital. She's okay. She reaches out to her family. She's like, your gifts were destroyed in the crash. And I'm so sorry. However... Not long after the incident, Deb started getting messages from her family saying that they were receiving their gifts in the mail.
3: Yeah. The Good Samaritan apparently fished through the wreckage, Mm -hmm. retrieved the packages and mailed them for her. Yes. That's crazy.
0: Can you imagine with the price of postage?
3: That's why it's important to have (laughs) stamps.com.
0: It's such an incredible story. And the thing is, Deb Newman's never been able to figure out who this person was, who this Good Samaritan was, that not only helped her in a great time of need, but then went above and beyond and Mm. mailed her Christmas packages for her. I have goosebumps. I can't handle it. Anyway, so this is the the Bangor Daily News's effort to help her get the story out and maybe reconnect her with the person who was so generous with both their time and their finances to help her get her Christmas miracle made.
3: And on the outside chance that you have an answer to that question, you can reach out to us here at curator at the box of oddities.com.
0: I just love that story.
3: We'll pass the info on. Enjoy the remainder of your holidays, freaks. We'll see you next time.
0: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
1: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. The Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna just do a quick pronunciation guy on there. Da 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 da. Because I don't wanna get corrected again. It happens all the time, pronouns.
2: (laughs) Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby.
4: And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid
3: ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives That they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further.
4: History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus